The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post-yet-still-very-racial America. You could say all that or just call this show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are Tanner Colby and Jamil Smith. Today we'll be talking about San Francisco 49ers player Colin Kaepernick and the growing NFL sit-downs, sit I almost said sit-ins. Wouldn't it be cool if there were sit-ins? That would actually be kind of dope. <laughs> <laughs> they just sat on the field, yeah, didn't play. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about San Francisco 49ers player Colin Kaepernick and the growing NFL sit-downs at games during the national anthem. And we're going to talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline and get some background on what the Standing Rock Sioux and many other Native people are protesting. But first... From now until the election, we're going to take a few minutes to catch up on the presidential race. It's been a while since we as a show touched on the issue of the 2016 election, and we obviously can't cover everything. But luckily, we have a man by the name of Jamil Smith who can talk about some of the recent events regarding rhetoric, race, and the quest for the presidency. Specifically, Donald Trump's recent visit to a black church in Detroit. Jamil, Jamil, you're a senior national correspondent for MTV News and wrote about the visit in a piece titled Fear of a Black Audience on Tuesday. So I wanted to explore a few things about this. First of all, what's Trump's specific appeal to black folks and how likely is that appeal even to work? And secondly, has Donald Trump ever listened to gospel music before? (laughs) I can't answer the second one. But the first one I tackle, I'm actually, I don't think he's actually (laughs) appealing to black people at all. But let's take him for a moment at his word that he is trying to actually get Well, I want to say, what's his specific appeal? Meaning not... Uh, What's his desire to, I'm trying to think how to put this. Like, how do you you distinguish between appeal and appeal? What's his specific ask or appeal to black folks about, in order to try and get their How is he trying to get them to vote for him? Right, yes. He's saying, look, you've been living under democratic rule in your urban hellholes. And here I am, a Republican in name only, to basically rescue you from that. I'm going to... Come into the presidency and with presumably a signature or by the word of God, what have you, I am going to eliminate crime, better your schools, increase your jobs, and basically do all of these things that Democrats have been unable to do as mayors of your cities. I don't know how he's going to do that because he's never explained one single policy that's specifically directed towards accomplishing those goals. And he's not apologizing for any of the 30 years of, of bigotry and racist statements and discrimination. And he's not even acknowledging them, No, right? he's not even acknowledging them. It's not serious. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why anyone in the media even treats it as anything but theater. I think there's a number of reasons why, and I think we can get into that. But one of them, I think, frankly, is deals with media diversity. You're seeing a lot of people who are in the media who have never experienced or, you know, don't really understand what Donald Trump has done to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't understand what he is. They don't understand what it was like to read the Central Park Five ad in 1989. You're talking about, you're talking about people in the media. Oh, yeah. Okay, so those yeah. people in the media that, that don't know this stuff are just, like, willfully ignorant at this point. At this I, point, yes. Because I feel like it's all been re-reported. you should know that. Yes. It's all been re-reported recently mm-hmm. in major exactly. news publications. So if you are a journalist... You're not doing I, your job. I guess you could say that they've read it, but they don't appreciate the import of it. Mm. I think that's actually what I'm getting at is that they, they may have, they may know that they, he put this ad out. They may know that his family has a history of housing discrimination. They may know all the offensive things that he said in the past, but they don't have a a different, they don't have our context for it. I remember as a 13 year old kid reading that ad in the New York daily news, I said to myself, okay, this is who this guy is Mm -hmm. that it's pretty plain that he is, trying to condemn these these five young men, all black and Hispanic, before they've even been tried for this crime. And no and, one asked him. That's the other thing, too. <laughs> and that's that's the thing that boggles the mind is, I mean, we have this this wealth of hideous statements from him, both on race and, and national policy and foreign policy. And like we have him saying that he's pro-choice 
on Meet the Press in 1999, I think it was. My question is, why the fuck was he on Meet the Press in 1999? What was wrong with the media that you were going to ask Donald Trump's opinions? I guess maybe that was with the whole Reform Party thing he was floating around. But mm-hmm. even then, it was a charade. Right. Why? You should find the producer who, who booked him on that episode and ask him or her what the fuck they were thinking. Right. The Today Show, Meet the Press, like, like meaningful outlets, not just Howard Stern and the New York Post. We're like engaging him on topics of policy 20 years ago. Why? Well, it goes to show you how, what kind of ridiculous platform we give to rich people in this country. Because you have a whole lot of money. Because you know how to get yourself in the newspaper or on on TV. Even if if it's for the most salacious reasons, we still are obligated to take you seriously. Right. If, If you have money, then you're a success. And if you're a success, you must be smart. Or you must have something interesting to contribute or to say. Just because you have money. Which is... Often the exact opposite. Jamil, I want to go back to like the idea of the media and how they've they've covered Trump, but also specifically that visit to that that church. You seem to imply in the piece that you wrote that the media bought into his outreach to this congregation or or Black Americans more more broadly. You mentioned a CNN headline that said that Trump had brought a quote message of unity to a Black church in Detroit. <laughs> right. And end quote. And first of all. What was the message of unity? Did you see evidence of that take on the visit in other media outlets? I guess the third question is, why would CNN read that headline? (laughs) Not that you work for them. (laughs) Right. Um, I I was shocked when I read that headline. And there was a number of others that likewise shocked me. And I shouldn't probably be shocked at this point because I've seen media throughout the course of his 18 months running for president take him so seriously when he really shouldn't be taken seriously. I think the impact that he has on our culture and our our politics should be taken seriously. The threat should be taken seriously. But him as a person, Mm -hmm. as a candidate, is a, you know, he's a deeply unserious person. And so seeing him in a black church with like a couple, you know, pieces of paper in his hand that he clearly had never read before in his life. (laughs) Um, And he goes up to the pulpit and starts trying to recite this speech. I I was amazed that uh, people actually took this seriously. Like they took, they took it as a sign of humility that he stumbled essentially over this speech in front of a black audience that he clearly had no interest in really actually getting to have them vote for him. Because if he did, he'd understand what they wanted. You know, as far as a specific community, he's, instead of just giving them vague promises of rebuilding Detroit and whatnot, the funny, the funny thing for me is actually being a private citizen with all that money and being a builder as he is, why wasn't he rebuilding Detroit before? It kind of gives a lie to the Republican theory of all this private industry is going to come and mm-hmm. rescue all these, you know, and, and take the place of public works, which you don't really need. And if he really was going to be rebuilding these communities, if he really was interested in that, why wasn't he doing it before? I, do you think that the people in the congregation were taking him seriously at all? I mean, it, it was hard for me to tell. For, first of all, I yeah. didn't watch the whole thing. Right. I, I have just watched clips. And I can't imagine that they were taking him seriously. I mean, there was one there was one line he had, and I wrote this down so I could read it aloud today, which was <laughs> that the assembled have a, quote, right to a really, really great job, a good paying job, and one that you love to go to every morning, and that can happen, end quote. And I'm like, this sounds like Bernie land. I mean, not to, like, make this all about Bernie <laughs> Sanders, but, like, we can have free college. I'm like, that sounds great. How are you going to do that? And actually, like, it just, it just felt to me that, like, any smart or somewhat cognizant human being who hears a presidential candidate say you have the right to a really, really great job, one that you love to go to every morning, would start laughing at him because... Really, you, really great. Really, really great. Really, really great. But the, well, really, really great and then really good. Yeah, and really good. <laughs> um, so I have no sense of whether the people in the assembled um, congregation had, had, had any sort of reaction to him because they were quite right. quiet. I wasn't there. So I don't want to <laughs> yeah, speak right. for the people who were in, in the sanctuary. But from the reporting that I read and saw, it doesn't seem like they were taking him very seriously. It seems like they were being good hosts. Hey, you're in our church. We're not going to boo you. We're not going to throw things at you. We're not going to curse you and yell at you. We're going to welcome you into our church because we know that this is on national TV. And we know that we don't want to come off bad. Mm -hmm. They played the gracious host. Certainly the bishop, Wayne T. Jackson, who was the person who interviewed Trump behind closed doors, with a script. 
and, uh, and is the one who invited him. He's in the, the one who play, invited right? him in the first what place. Is, what is his play in this? What what is what is his angle? What does he get out of? <laughs> yeah, and who is for his, he? With it from his community, from what like is it a political move for him? Is it a why? I I'm a little bit at a loss for it, but the the only thing I can really I keep coming back to is that you now know who Bishop Wayne T. Jackson is. Yeah, there you go. You know who he is. You know where his church is. And I think that that, to me, is the primary motivation, which is sad. But at the same time, given I mean, he just he just made a fool out of himself when he was in the church, not only in this like sort of long rambling introduction, not only agreeing to a scripted interview with a presidential candidate behind closed doors for your television channel, but also he gave him like a gift bag at the end, which included a Jewish talent. Which, oh, he, right. which he draped over Trump's shoulders in front of the entire church. And they just stood there like, it's just it was agonizing to watch. So, well, okay, this brings me my, to my next question, which is that you had opened your piece talking about the similarities between Trump and black pr- prosperity gospel preachers. Yes. So I want to know if you can elaborate on what you mean by that for listeners and explain what a black prosperity gospel preacher is, which are they different from white prosperity gospel preachers? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I wouldn't say that they're all that different. I'd say that, you know, they have different audiences. Joel Osteen has a different audience, say, than Creflo Dollar does. But I compared him to Creflo Dollar because there had been a false rumor that had been going around that Creflo Dollar had endorsed Donald Trump. And the reason why I feel like this rumor was so believable is because I feel like there's kind of the same guy They're trying to sell their flock on a vision of prosperity. Essentially, your devotion will then make you rich. Devote yourself to the Trump cause, and he's going to bring jobs. He's going to bring safety. He's going to bring the America that you want back again. You mean Jim Crow? (laughs) Exactly. I'm I'm making jokes about the America great again. Sorry. We we mock, but... (laughs) Yeah. You know, and Creflo, for for his sake, he's out here promising that... Essentially, if you follow the scripture, if you have devotion to the church, God and Jesus, they want you to be rich. So if as long as you pray and as long as you devote yourself to the church and make sure you give, make sure you give that money, you are also going to share in that kind of uh, in that wealth. And it's a, it's a scam, frankly. So, OK, so how is Trump like a like what is his what is his angle what is he trying to communicate to fans or potential fans that he that they should buy into in order to have riches and success? Like what? Buy his books, buy his stakes, <laughs> you know, no, buy, buy apartments he, in his buildings. In, in a yeah. way, in, in a way, he, his his candidacy is product. Yeah, I mean, you know, buy the Trump campaign, buy the Trump vision, and if you buy into this vision and you make sure you not only vote for him but you buy the hats, you you proselytize basically on his behalf then you are going to share in the in the benefit of whatever Trump does in office. And the he's apocalypse. Got, <laughs> I mean, it, hey, you'll be the ones living. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's the way they see it, having talked to Trump voters and trying to get an understanding of where they're coming from, they see it as this guy is speaking. Finally they have somebody to speak for them. Finally that he they have somebody who is articulating all the frustrations and resentment and in, in problems that they have been experiencing. And while I understand the desire for that, it's a very limited and narrow way to approach politics. And when you just look at how things are going to benefit you and how things make you feel better, and frankly, voting is one of the more collective enterprises that we engage in. It's not, it's, the, it's one thing that we know is not just about us. Mm-hmm. And so when you approach it the way Trump wants you to approach it, essentially, with his sales pitch, Think of a person who goes to one of these these meetings where they like a former Wall Street person tells them how to get rich quick. This is a, it's the same kind of scam. I, I think it, I know. I think it's 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 one degree off of that because you're saying that you know voting is a collective and thinking and you know, being bigger. So they they are voting for the collective, but their definition of we is very different from what your definition of we is because they are saying this is about making the country making us great again. Mm-hmm. But it just includes a certain group. But when they, when they, when they, when I've interviewed them, they tell me he, he, finally, it's about what I've been feeling all this time. It's about what I've been experiencing. About what my, t- you know, it's not necessarily just about maybe them personally. Maybe it's their town. Maybe it's their family. Mm-hmm. But 
it is about them. And, right. you know, in a very specific sense. Hmm. Can I, um, can I bust in here real quick? Can I, is there some reason to be optimistic about the way that could be turned into some kind of positive thing in the aftermath of this election if Trump loses? Mm. As I can't, I, I can't imagine one, but like, oh, by the way, for listeners, this is your friendly neighborhood producer, AC. Hi, AC. Hi. I don't envision a way that it actually can become a positive because I think that it's just so poisonous at its heart. This is a, you know, a political philosophy that it basically benefits from getting you to distrust politics, from saying that all the po politicians that are in Washington are working against your interests, that the media who covers politics is biased against your interests and all of these things that are against you and you're the victim. You are the, the, the oppressed person here. I think that mentality is just not productive. Here's maybe a related question. So the the headline for your piece was fear of a black audience. Mm -hmm. I I want to know what you meant by that. Okay. That he's so afraid of black audiences that he can only he can only engage with them in a in the protected space of a of a church with scripted questions and answers beforehand. That's part of it, but re the real reason that headline is on the piece is because I think he's fearful of going before any audience that doesn't buy his sales pitch. He understands that his sales pitch is everything when it comes to his rallies. Getting people riled up only works if people have bought into his bullshit. And here, no one's buying into it. He knows if he goes before an audience of color, African-Americans or Latinos, that by and large, that audience is not going to be buying what he's selling. So... I just remarked, frankly, on his lack of energy during the speech. It seemed subdued. It seemed wistful. It just seemed kind of lost. And it, there was no verve there. There was no energy there. And granted, maybe he thought like he, he was in a church and I'm just going to look at least respectful and just try to not do my full rally voice. But there's no real appeal to the crowd there. It was just simply kind of a basic thank you for letting me be up here. And then I just offer you a couple bits of my policy. So, so it's like he's... Platitudes. They weren't even policy. It was, yeah, it was they were yeah. yeah. So basically, like, he's, he's you know, this kind of segues into your argument that he voter base. So oh, he can get cookies for going to a black church and, you know, hopefully for him, tamp down any idea that he really is a quote-unquote real racist. Right. I'm not quoting anybody there at all. I'm just no, putting it, in it, quotes. No, it, it began right after he went there. Rudy Giuliani goes on Fox News the next day and says, oh, well, he is reaching out to black voters. And look at this. He, he went to a black church. And isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the bar is already so low for Donald Trump in so many areas, but particularly here. He goes to one black church. He meets, meets, you know, in Philadelphia with one group of black Republicans. And all of a sudden he's making that outreach. It, it just, it's, it's baffling. The bar has been lowered in many ways, or maybe we should say the bar has been lowered in many ways. <laughs> That's a reference to. Hey, oh. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're going to go on to the, to the next segment. All right, Tanner. We received a bunch of requests in the past week to discuss Colin Kaepernick's refusal to stand during the national anthem at NFL games, or maybe I should say at preseason games. But support but, seems. But to now he's coming regular. No, season. The regular season's just started. Yeah, yeah. So he's going to continue doing it. He's going to continue doing it. Right. I mean, he first did it though in a preseason right. game. Yes. Men, men, correcting me. Nope. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> Keep that in. Keep the whole thing in. All right, Tanner. We received a bunch of requests in the past week to discuss Colin Kaepernick's refusal to stand during the national anthem at NFL games, and support for it seems to be spreading with other players, even people who are not football players, like uh, Megan Rapinoe, who's a female it's, soccer player. We we Megan. might we we might have a a, a reverse oh captain my captain effect happening yeah well people, i mean people sitting down or people kneeling down <laughs> so here's i think most people listening to the show will be familiar with the gist colin kaepernick san francisco 49ers quarterback started this just as like a personal hey, i'm just gonna do this and mm -hmm. and he got asked about it at a press conference in a sense mushroomed into this thing and we've gotten this usual debate of people saying this is awesome this is horrible and i want to like maybe like just step back to the middle and say okay did it work like, was this a success? Was it a good thing? So, like, we do have more athletes doing it. The owner of the 49ers is saying he's going to give a million dollars to 
uh, local charities dealing with some of these issues. Yeah, wait, which charities are? Did he say? I've I've been read. It seems so like he didn't so, specify. So he, vague. He, I'm gonna give a million dollars. He hasn't specified yet. So. Is Kaepernick effective? Is this working? Is it a good idea? I think it's working because it's continuing the conversation. And eventually, I think in parts, you get actually to hear about what he's protesting instead of the flag, instead of the anthem, instead of all this other ancillary stuff that people want to make it about. I think, frankly, what it is really about is police brutality and the ongoing you know, persistence of racism in America. And he is making people understand that look, I'm not trying to insult the military. I'm not trying to insult the flag. I'm not trying to insult the anthem. What he's doing and what these other players who are joining him are doing are, you know, frankly, I think going to be calling weekly attention to something that we should be discussing all the time. I, I think it is working. I have a, a maybe dumb question. I don't understand the military angle. The national anthem at the start of sporting events, they get the military planes going overhead. They use not every sold- game. I mean, every I've, single game at the NFL. At the NFL, okay. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. about I'm thinking about baseball games. It is, it is, <laughs> That's what I go to. It yeah. is it is part of the NFL's mission statement, and the Roger Goodell is okay. Spoke, but but the, that's patriotism not, is woven into the game. Fine, but like, but like, but there's nothing there's nothing beyond that beyond NFL games that suggests that the Star Spangled Banner is about the military. It's about the United States, and maybe the military. Yes, it's part of the United States, but I don't get I don't get this like hand wringing about the about the military. So I, I just don't. So I, I read. The other day that the Seattle Seahawks are considering a, a team-wide show of unity. Yes. The, the, apparently, Doug Baldwin, who is a wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks, tweeted out a kind of cryptic message on Thursday saying that the team is planning some sort of demonstration. Now, what kind of demonstration that is, I'm not sure. Granted, you got to keep in mind, that first Sunday game is going to be on the anniversary of September 11th and the September 11th attacks. And so... Are you going to protest the flag on when, that day? On that day? <laughs> I wish they would just say what they plan on doing or just do it. I don't think they make any kind of announcements or any kind of hubbub or any kind of hints if all they're going to do is just run out on the field with the flag in their hands and stand at the sideline with their hands on their chest. They're definitely planning on doing something. I mean, like if, 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 if they protest on Sunday, is anyone who, who isn't looking to be offended actually going to think that they're someone who's kneeling or, or, or refusing to stand for the anthem is is pro nine eleven is actually, you know, trying to legitimize what happened fifteen years ago. God knows I mean, that's what just, people are gonna think, but well, I think that that's yeah. certainly possible. Yeah, but I mean nine eleven is like, you know, it's like the Stonehenge and the Vernal Equinox. It's like some, you know, <laughs> confluence of things where you don't want to do anything wrong. I, I find it odd that time and again on this show I'm the skeptic. And like like the people of power on the show like this is going to make a difference. And I'm like, eh. Wait, hold, no. on, hold on a second. No, no, no. When I, did I say that it was going to make a difference? I didn't say it was going to make a difference. I never said anything. I say it's work. working as far as visibility. But, but, but I don't but know. What is, I, but what kind of visibility? What is it doing? What is it accomplishing? Well, number one, number number one, I think it's the very fact that, and I think that the bar is low, admittedly here, but the very fact that we're even talking about this on a weekly basis, now, again, in the midst of a presidential campaign, you know, without anybody actually dying on the streets, thanks to police, you know, at least any, any cases that we're hearing about. But we're not really talking about police brutality. We're talking about Colin Kaepernick's <laughs> patriotism. And what, well, what, one of the things that, that, that like Jamel Bowie wrote a great piece when, you know, the first flurries of Black Lives Matter were happening and we didn't know if it was going to coalesce into something significant and real and sustained. It was just like, you know, sporadic here and there. And the mm-hmm. the, the most ridiculous of, of all the iterations was, I think, the Occupy Brunch movement in Oakland where black people just showed up at white people's brunch spots and like just made a spectacle. And It wasn't and, just black people. It was protest. It, they weren't just black people who showed up at white people's brunch spots. There were white people who showed up at white people's brunch spots. Well, but it was like there was no agenda to it and jamel wrote a great piece that like protest has specific goals a specific target and a specific way to achieve resolution in order to be successful the 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 archetype of this would be something like selma where martin luther king says we are going to do this until the voting rights amendment is passed he has a deliberate villain to go up against he's got jim clark and southern segregations and he has a way to provide resolution and provide lbj a way to declare victory and get away out by signing the voting rights amendment it was a thing that accomplished a Colin thing. Colin Kaepernick right. was a football player, not Martin Luther King Jr. Right. I mean, well, and, and, and but everyone's comparing him to Muhammad Ali. Muhammad no, Ali did a I specific don't. thing yeah. regarding a specific policy that is, has nothing to do with it. If you want to talk about raising awareness, 
you know, LeBron and the other teams wearing the I Can't Breathe t-shirts. That's raising awareness without the negativity of insulting people's patriotism. Well, let's go but back. If you, look at, if you look at what Kaepernick, in his interviews and when it started, said, yeah. what would be a success for you on this in the short term? He says, that's a tough question because there's a lot of things that need to change and a lot of different issues that need to be addressed. Then he's asked, when will this, you know, be over? When will, you know, this resolve itself? He said, when there's significant change and the country is representing people the way it's supposed to. What, what does that even okay. mean? Well, I, I don't know, but, but Where does this end? How, what is the resolution to what he's doing? Let's go back to how this started. He was doing this without anybody noticing, without anybody really caring, in, until Steve Weiss from NFL.com asked him about it. And so, really, at the end of the day, I think this is about what it, it's, it's about. It's about him. It's about a personal protest. It's about a personal a protest statement. of what? A protest of police brutality, all the things that he said. But you know what? He's going to do it for as long as he wants to do it. Why should we care? Because we care because if you're going to, by doing this, he's kicking the hornet's nest. He could say, oh, I just did it for me and I didn't, no, people are going to notice, maybe not the first game if you're in the crowd, but eventually people are going to realize that you're doing this thing. How do you think, and, how do you think change happens unless you kick hornet's nests? Right. First of all, but you should second, kick the hornet's secondly, nest. But, you should no. kick the hornet's nest, uh-huh. but you need to ha- know what steps right. is going to happen next. Otherwise, you're just kicking the hornet's nest. Oh, no, 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 no. He's a football player. He doesn't need to know what steps happen next. He's not, he's not, he's not strategizing for like s- some sort of like big social movement. He's having a personal protest. He doesn't and have like, to be that's Black okay. Lives Matter. Now you may, yeah, you may not agree with the ways that he's going about it, but like let him, let him have a personal protest. Who cares? And also it's not about, it, it became about patriotism because people freaked out at him. He didn't make it about patriotism so much. He didn't say the United States is a stinking hellhole. He, he said, he says, I'm not proud of a country that oppresses black people, which Good. Which, which is his fine. right. That's which fine. Is, it is his right. And That's it's totally right fine. along the lines of the James Baldwin framework for patriotism that I that I subscribe to, which is that if you really love a country, you reserve the right to criticize that country of perpetually. Course. And of so and perpetually means as long as you feel like it. Right. I mean, and so he should feel free to sit down as long as he feels like it. If he never stands for the anthem again. That's his decision. And, and that's and that's fine. But I don't think that because everyone else got wrapped up in all this other ancillary stuff, we need to put pressure on him to make it somehow more meaningful. Right. Nor mm. the nor, nor that we have to put pressure on him we to somehow change his tactics because because other people read read into it a certain way. I mean, honestly, I really think this Do is Do we really a, think this that, is a, that 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 not standing for the national anthem at something as yeehaw America as an NFL game? <laughs> I mean, he had to know that it would become this. Maybe, Maybe he didn't. We don't know. Why? <laughs> we don't I mean, know like, what he knows. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you'd have to talk frankly, to him. Frankly, given, I mean, look, I, there, I have criticisms of Kyle Kaepernick that deal with his evaluation, his sort of both sidism with regards to his comments on Trump and Clinton. I mean, he mm-hmm. criticizes Trump as this megalomaniac, and then he criticizes Clinton for emails and says she should be in prison, which she should not be. So obviously, the brother could be a little bit more informed with regards to his politics. But that does not take away from the fact that he is correct that there is a, a systemic racism. There of is police there is. brutality. Right. But there are a lot of but, people out here who don't even recognize the fact that those things exist. Right. But here's, here's, here's a counterexample. Let's say if you actually want, yeah, if you just want to make a statement, make a statement. But he's mm. made a statement. It's been wildly misinterpreted. Misinterpreted. Thank you. Can we keep that in? Yes. It's been wildly <laughs> misinterpreted. <laughs> And it is now we are embroiled in this conversation in the middle of a political campaign about whether black people are patriotic enough. Now, is that Colin Kaepernick's fault? Is it? A, wait, wait, wait. Has there been has there been an argument whether black people are patriotic enough, or is it about whether he's patriotic? Because I think I feel like if I, I mean, I'm yeah, asking, I, I especially think, since I, Megan Rapinoe did like, her thing. I don't think it's but, about. But I think if you go into a lot of quarters of white America, a black quarterback doing this to them is a stand-in for black people. But okay, but even while you're phrasing it, doing this to them, doing this to them, like it's our problem. It's everyone's problem. It's not Kaepernick's problem to fix that. No, that is their problem. No, that is their problem. (laughs) I I gotta say, that is not Kaepernick's problem to change their perception. That is not on him. He should be able to do whatever the hell he wants to do as an American without having people make erroneous assumptions and judgments about why him. Can't, why can't Colin Kaepernick just be Colin Kaepernick instead of Colin Kaepernick stand in for all black people? Mm hmm. Because he is a symbol in a popular culture that puts things on him. But that's oh, not part, that's okay. not his contract. No, no. You know what I mean? He <laughs> yeah, signed up to yeah. play quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> yeah. He didn't sign up to, he, he, if he makes a personal protest or makes a personal statement, that is about 
what he feels. He's not trying to stand in for all of us. This th- this is reminding me because like one of the pieces that got sent sent around to us before mm-hmm. we were taping was a Business Insider piece by Josh Barrow. And I don't remember what the headline was. It was something about how Colin Kaepernick was was actually a great, you know, an unwitting but great surrogate for Trump because he was riling up white people and their racism. And this this would actually, you know, accrue benefit to Trump. First of all, I thought the piece was dumb. And I don't think Josh Barrow is dumb. I think the piece was dumb. One of the dumbest things he said (laughs) was that he quoted Obama at the convention saying that America is already great. You know, Obama pushing back against Trump's ideas that we need to make America great again. And then what Josh said was, if America is already great, why shouldn't athletes be expected, not a legal expectation, but a civic expectation to stand and honor the flag during the national anthem? And I'm like, <laughs> what does that have to do with it has, what? Has, what does that have to do with anything as if great is an objective state of being as if all black men or one black person is a stand in for, for every, every every other one. So, but if, also so if Obama just because said the president it was, says it at the exactly. Democratic National Convention no. that obligates every black athlete everywhere to stand in attention. That doesn't I actually we don't think, have these expectations of white athletes when, you know, when white politicians make similar statements. No, I think I think I think the fun the, the most interesting thing about all this and believe me, I wasn't even paying attention to it for like the first week and a half after like it, it blew up. The, the most telling thing about this is the way that people are reacting to him and the things that they're projecting on him, not what he did, not what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, and here's, that's what I wrote the column about. Right, here's here's a counterexample. It's all about cuz one thing you did this conversation with Dave Zirin at the nation, and he was lamenting that he tried to make a statement or attempted to make a statement about police brutality, and it's become about patriotism and the flag, was the narrative that spun out of control from it. Now, what happened on this show, when I first came on this show, is I just talked like I talk, and we got lots of emails, like that, you know, Tanner Colby is mansplaining, and my my voice was oppressing <laughs> my my voice was oppressing women of color and and this that and the other and you know it, it was just me having you know conversations with Raquel and Baratunde and they were putting that onto me and I learned how to modulate or I'm I am learning how to modulate I'm not perfect at it yet but when I speak at a volume of about seven people hear it at eleven mm-hmm. and I That's modulate what happens to black people. Well, no. Welcome to the club, Tanner. No, but you just you just made my point exactly. So what I have, what I've learned, what I'm trying to do in this space is to modulate the way I frame things, modulate the way I present things, so that my intent is not misconstrued. So here you have a a case where Colin Kaepernick did something and said something, and it was wildly misinterpreted. You're saying, well, that's not his fault. To a point, if you're a stand-up comedian and you go on stage and tell a joke and nobody laughs, you can blame the audience to a point. But it may be you don't know how to read the audience. You told the wrong joke before that audience. To sit, stand up at an NFL game, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I think if you want, like I say, if you want to kick the hornet's nest, kick it. By all means, do something provocative and make a statement, but know where you're going with it and have a plan in place for what you're doing. But if you just kick the hornet's nest, I'm sorry, not standing for the national anthem at the Yeehaw Most America, maybe only second to NASCAR, not even that, NFL games, to do this and not know how it's going to be construed. But maybe he did know. How do you know he didn't know? You, we, we, we don't know that, like, what he knew. But or... then no one, no, one, no one is backtracking and then saying, hmm, maybe tactically this was not the best way to proceed with this protest. And I don't I also... think he was being tactical. I think, I think, I, I don't think it was coming out of some like strategy. He's not an organizer or at least historically an activist. He's a football player. He's a professional football player. I think he's using his platform for visibility. He went after the game, after when he was asked by Steve Weish to explain it, to explain why he's doing it. He said, you know, this is bigger than football and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. Okay, great. And then he explained exactly why he decided to do this. Now, people don't want to accept that explanation. That is not on him. What is the problem that you have with what he did? I guess here, and this is what he's, what he's done or what he's doing or what it's become, is somewhere between personal statement and personal protest. If it is just, I, you know, I, I stand on my Olympic podium and raise my fist and don't wear any shoes. I'm making a statement, right? So, or if I go onto the court for, you know, one practice the week after the Eric Garner judgment wearing my I can't breathe shirt, I'm making a statement. What he has said is that, I did this because I cannot be proud of a country that oppresses black people, and I will continue doing it 
until there is change. So now he's okay, stepping well, that's in, where, and now he's stepping into like a gray zone between statement and campaign of protest. So well, you're saying it's not, it's not as clear it's to say not as clear. a, as, as what a is I doing? can't breathe shirt or to say that a black he's going to continue to say that he's going to continue doing it until okay, that's something what you don't is like. done. That's what you don't like. Well, then. I just don't think it's effective. I don't think it's useful. Well, okay, I think, it, I think it, of course it isn't a useful because like like because he, like he's not going to be alive to see the, like the sort of change that he wants to see. Probably, I mean, like so he's what he's going to be kneeling for the rest of his life. No, like of course. I, I, that was a dumb thing to say, but it also is. I, I feel like my expectations are pretty low here because he's not an activist or an organizer or or, or 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 a civil rights icon. He's a professional football player who is fed up and frustrated with the state of race relations in this country and the state and, and the ways that African Americans are treated and have been treated historically. And this is one way for him to protest that. So, okay. protest, make a statement. He did. He and did. He is. And he's right. And he's, and he's not only making once, a statement. He should have just done it once. No, He's but saying. he but he's put conditions on it. He said, and who, like, okay, I will I'm do like, this." But I'm like, "Who cares?" Because like, I mean, yes, yes, the conditions are. I don't know if they're dumb, but like, they're they're vague. They're, they're, he, they're, he they're already, I, 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 no, I'll go out. I'll agree with Tanner in, the, in one respect. He did paint himself into a box. There you go. Okay. There he you said, go. "Okay, basically, I'm going to be on my knee or sit down for the anthem until these goals, which a lot of us, I think, you know, would be considered maybe unrealistic." Are or not unrealistic, but unrealistic within the term of an NFL quarterback's career. Is it that you think he's self being self aggrandizing because because he actually thinks that he has the power to make those those things change society? If anything, he didn't appreciate his amount of power as an NFL quarterback of how much impact it would have, and that we'd be talking about it on this level. But I I think think, he is backing it up, though. He's he's donating a million dollars to these charities. He's getting the team to do the same thing, and also he's making us think about it every single week every single week when you see him kneeling on the sidelines it is a it yeah. strikes a blow for critical sure. thinking about this country's situation with race maybe you experience it as a kind of little like pick 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 and it's irritating and you think that and, and it's obviously irritating to a lot of other people who are like caterwauling about it but i feel like that's how you that that's how you keep conversations going how you how you how you continue them and sustain them is to pick 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 at them and you know i don't give a fuck if he like kneels for the, the rest of his life or his rest of his professional career i don't see what the big deal is in the whole scheme of things i don't get it i don't get the outrage i understand that he that he does not seem like he's very sophisticated in having thought this out but I'm like, he's a young dude who's a football player. Of course he didn't. Well, Jamil, maybe because you worked for the NFL, I maybe did. maybe you can, can can give some context on the cultural import of the fucking NFL in this country. <laughs> well, I, wait, wait, hold on. You're acting like I don't like I don't know anything about football. But you keep I, minimizing his. You I don't you don't get I the big deal. I grew up watching the 49ers. Right, but you're saying like, well, it's he's just a football quarterback. It's like, but that is America. Just a football quarterback no, is not... No, 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 A football quarterback is not America. A football quarterback is part of America. There's a lot of Americas that have nothing to do with football or, and a lot of Americas that don't care about football. Yeah. I think that you. I think that you're actually giving too much import to what he's done, but also to the NFL. I'm not saying the NFL is is meaningless or has has no influence at all. Of course, it's a big fucking deal, but... I think you're making it too big of a fucking deal. Well, now, I, I, I'm, now I'm like confusing myself and I'm going to stop talking To the for people a who are the NFL, <laughs> I, I don't watch any football, but to the people who are the core audience of the NFL, which is the audience you're going to reach when you don't stand up for the national anthem at an NFL right. football game, to those people, it's bigger than, than God and common sense. Okay? Yeah. And so... To, Do we have to tiptoe around them? No, but you have to, again, if I tell a joke in front of an audience and no one laughs... I can only blame the audience for so long. If that is the audience that you're watching, then you need to be strategic in how you you communicate with them. If this is a protest, if it's mm-hmm. just a guy doing something, I don't know. But we're we're all talking about it like it's it's gotten conflated with Black Lives Matter, and, and by him which is putting, unfortunate by him putting conditions on, I will do this until and like it, he made it, he put it in this gray zone between I'm making a personal statement as a person and. I am doing some sort of boycott leverage to affect some kind of change. And it's in a gray zone. I don't know what he's doing. That's my right. main problem with it. Right. Isn't his jersey the number one selling jersey right now? Yes, it is. And okay. he's donating all the proceeds okay. to local so charities. He's had an effect on people. Is, who is anyone buying the jersey that didn't already agree with the general sentiment? You don't know. We don't, we don't know. know. Maybe there's somebody, maybe there's somebody who didn't think about I'm who, not sees, who sees protesters in Ferguson and says, you know what? The police are all the way right. This is so wrong. And they see Kaepernick talking about this differently. And maybe they're 49ers fans. Like, you know what? 
I'm going to get thinking things differently, thinking about this differently. I'm going to look at Google and find out what's going on in the news. Maybe I'll read something that changes my mind on this. I'm not saying no good has come of it, but I'm saying we got locked in this this false debate between this is the greatest thing ever and this is uh, totally racist and or totally unpatriotic and, you know... Colin Kaepernick is evil. The The fact is that in the middle of this... <laughs> I think you're reducing it a lot. Honestly, Tanner, I think you're reducing it a lot. I don't know who... The, and also, we didn't do anything. I mean, I've seen a lot of comments after I wrote this column, you know, in my mentions... He, and a, boycott you know, the what NFL. Kick him out of the NFL. Yeah, there was a hashtag boycott NFL last night during the, uh, during the first <laughs> NFL game, which I thought maybe might have been about concussions or right. something <laughs> a lot more serious. Right. But no, it was about this. Right. So it's my, about yeah. black men taking a knee. Right. So it's, it's, it's not Colin Kaepernick is doing the greatest thing ever, and it's not Colin Kaepernick should be kicked out of the NFL. It's here's kind of a flawed thing that's raised some good issues, but has some problems. Mm-hmm. But isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that talking about race, period? And yeah. Just, and, I mean, and, 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 and that's and why the national conversation about conversations about race has to talk about the ways in which the national conversation is flawed. Okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to move on um, to our next topic, the Dakota Access Pipeline. For some time now, members of several Native tribes and other folks have been protesting against the construction of an oil pipeline in North Dakota in solidarity with the Standing Rock Sioux, whose reservation is nearby. The Standing Rock Sioux began their protest because the Army Corps of Engineers approved a plan to construct that pipeline underneath the Missouri River, threatening the tribe's water supply. Joining us now by Skype is Jacqueline Keeler. She's a Navajo and Yankton Dakota Sioux columnist for Telesur English and has written for The Nation, Quartz, The Daily Beast, and other places. She's also the author of the upcoming anthology, From the Edge of Mourning, Native Voices Speak for Bears Ears. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. Welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. So can you catch us up a little bit on the latest news and also put everything in a little bit more context as to like how long this has been going on and what the specific concerns are? So um, we just finally got the federal judge's decision concerning the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's lawsuit. Um, they sued the Army Corps of Engineers and have been waiting for a response for a couple weeks now. And so today it finally came out and they were denied the request for an injunction to stop the building of the uh, pipeline. Did the judge say why he or she denied the request? The reason is that they basically felt the injunction request was not met. I think they were trying to tackle... The uh, Earth Justice attorneys were trying to tackle it from the point of view of stopping these fast-track permitting national permitting processes mm-hmm. that the Army Corps of Engineers have been using on pipelines. And they felt that these were not really, they're not supposed to be implemented for pipelines this large. And, you know, I do feel like um, that maybe they should have looked more at the, the issues having to do with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribes environmental concerns and also um, you know more concerns with the, related to their sovereignty mm-hmm. in fact the judge says in his decision that that would have been a stronger case well okay so Jamil is sitting here next to me and, and he and he held up his cell phone in my face <laughs> and, to a story that he says it would, did it just get published yes what? uh BuzzFeed has just updated their report saying that yes the judges a uh, judge denied the attempts to halt the construction however the US government issued a statement saying that they are, quote, voluntarily stopping construction until the land under a lake near the tribe's reservation is assessed because, quote, important issues raised by the tribe remain. Yes. And yeah, and I, the Army Corps of Engineers also issued a statement saying that they would uh, not authorize the construction um, of the pipeline bordering under Lake Oahe. And yeah, they are going to take these seriously. The issue was that the uh, injunction request was probably not under the strongest you know, it wasn't the strongest suit mm-hmm. that the tribe had. Okay. In fact, he says that the judge felt that potential environmental harms might arise would have been a stronger case. So um, rather than challenging the Army Corps' um, you know, national procedures. How did these actions start getting more mainstream attention? Was it what happened last week? I know there, was a, there were a number of confrontations between, um, well, I shouldn't call them protesters. They like to call themselves protectors, but activists and private security personnel who'd been hired to keep the activists away from construction they were trying to do. And there, you know, it got a bit violent. There were dogs. There were dogs who bit people. People were hurt. Can you put a little put a little bit of it in context in terms of how this came to national attention and whether you think it's getting enough? 
Yeah, I would say that the camps have been ongoing. The, the first camp, the Sacred Stone camp, there are now three camps there, um, with, got started on April 1st. And this was um, when the uh, the tribe really realized that they were not being heard. And um, by mid-August, there was about two to 3,000 people at the camp. Okay. Finally, we've been really trying to get more media coverage. Um, we're not getting the kind of coverage that the Bundys got. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that really, I mean, we don't have a 24 hour, 24-7 CNN thing going on. But yeah, it did take basically this Saturday um, during Labor Day mm-hmm. weekend. The tribe had filed on Friday uh, identifying burial grounds, stone carns, and the remains of villages. I had a quick question, Jacqueline. Are there any jobs or any kind of other benefits that the oil company or the government, Army Corps of Engineers, have said, hey, we know that we're disrupting your entire community and entire way of life, but here are some positives that may come of this. Should we be able to proceed with the construction? Well, the issue has to do with that. Um, the construction is a short-term thing, and certainly um, it, the, the, the jobs don't stick around. They're building. They lay the pipe, and then they're gone. The issue is that the a lot of these oil companies have extremely poor records in maintaining these pipes. And when they break, within two minutes, if there's a pipeline break, it will reach their head start. Within five minutes, their elementary school. Within 10 minutes, it reaches their water intake, which is like the only source of water for the entire reservation. And you have to realize that Bismarck, North Dakota, it was a Originally, the crossing of the Missouri River was originally proposed for 10 miles north of Bismarck, and the city actually refused it because they felt it would threaten their water resources. There was an article in the Hill newspaper, I would actually call it more of an opinion column than an article, um, written by a former energy official who was also kind of um, echoing some of the things that I'd read in the post piece, he said, now let's also just be very clear, he's a former energy <laughs> department official, <laughs> saying that the, that the tribe had not participated in any public comment meetings in North Dakota and had refused to meet with officials on seven different invitations. Yeah, is that is that your understanding? Does he have a point? Is, is, is that a fair criticism? No, I don't okay. think so. What the tribe has said that there was no meaningful consultation mm-hmm. that occurred. There were they repeatedly tried to engage the federal agencies, including the Army Corps of Engineers and also the energy company, and they got no response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they don't want to recognize our sovereignty. Mm-hmm. They don't want to recognize that we still exist as nation states. Mm-hmm. Most Americans are not aware that we are actually nations within their mm-hmm. countries, mm-hmm. within their country. It's our, our real political identity is clouded because it threatens the United States. Yeah, well, most and certainly yeah, most Americans don't know yeah. don't know the, the American history <laughs> if, at all, right? If, if laws are only as valuable as the social norms that enforce them, are the laws regarding your sovereignty that meaningful in in regards to? What society believes. You say these these lawyers and these these company officials act with impunity. Well, they do because every treaty violation in history has been not punished. So, well, this is this is why we need media attention because, and we need um, you know we need it to be covered in the uh, through the lens of sovereignty because um, most Americans are so unaware that this allows these things mm-hmm. to happen. It isn't just Native peoples who are protesting or protecting. Black Lives Matter members have gone to the to the Dakotas. I can't say it. The Dakotas. <laughs> um, they've been posting online about their support in, the, in of the protests. There were some Hollywood actors, one of whom was Ben Affleck. I don't know. I saw something the other day who've been speaking out about this. So I, it's interesting how there's been this. I don't know if you, if I call it an outgrowth, but more people have been speaking out about this than maybe one would think. And so I guess my question is, is there something symbolic for Native Americans and Native peoples and their their history and their, their rights and the privileging of their voices that hasn't happened before because of the fact that all these, you know, I don't want to say outsiders, but like the, the, the lots of people are, are hearing about this and, and reacting and, and, and offering support. Yeah, I think that's been an amazing part of it is just the broad support we've gotten. First, the support was from other tribes. And um, and then it began. And of course, there have been folks like Susan Sarandon and Shailene, who have been part of this for quite a while. But um, until we are getting 24-7 coverage on CNN about our issues, and something like this happens that we aren't really recognized as being part of America. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm hoping there. I'm, I'm hoping there are not any more attacks, and that the the um, the protectors. <laughs> I keep wanting to say protesters, but uh, are are allowed to protest in relative peace. And I guess you know maybe this weekend it'll be interesting to see what what happens there, especially in light of what happened today. 
So I want to say thanks, Jacqueline. <laughs> and also, we're going to keep an eye on this and um, would love to talk to you about it again. Yeah, definitely. Thank okay. you. Okay. As we do every show, we're going to make some recommendations. What have you all been watching, listening, reading uh, that our listeners need to know about? Jamil, you're first. Yes. Um, I have been, st- I've just started Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get my way through that. But also on my list is a new book by my friend Jessica Luther called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, which deals with sexual assault and collegiate sports. So if you're interested in sports, if you're interested in how, uh, you know, consent is really, frankly, not well, very well defined, at least for these athletes. I think you should be checking that book out. Okay, Tanner. I am reading a great book called Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World by Saadi Hamid. And it's a really good book about, again, threading the needle between two polar arguments, one of rampant Islamophobia and one of sort of like a liberal naivete about the actual difficulties that come with multicultural societies and it's 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 about the expectations that we ha- that westerners have for islam and and the conflicts that arise therefrom okay um we're gonna get ac or producers take since i don't have any recommendations myself ac one of the books that i started reading recently was uh the fire this time which is a collection of essays and poems and things and it's uh just excellent uh, collection of things, mostly dealing with blackness and black identity. And it's kind of divided up into like a bunch of different sections about the past, the present, the future. And I'm kind of gearing up for the Isabel Wilkerson essay, who is uh, okay. maybe one of my wife's yeah. favorite authors. And um, like, I'm reading this Tell in everyone very what else slow she's bits. Tell everyone what else is uh, written. The Warmth of, of Other Sons, which yes. is a tremendous book. Mm-hmm. But I'm also preparing myself to like read this and get really depressed this weekend <laughs> because I'm not, sh- I'm sure like the, some of the stuff I've read already is already very that's, upsetting. That's why I brought the Japanese yeah. whiskey to the table. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I actually reviewed that book for the New York times. Oh yeah. And I think that you, by the time you get to the end, you'll be feeling a little bit more hopeful. Yeah. Good. Okay, great. Thank you for all the suggestions. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to, I don't know, pick it up this weekend just because this past week was, <laughs> was, was more work than pleasure, which is not a complaint because I like my work. That's all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And we are now accepting voice memos. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and on behalf of Jamil Smith and Tanner Colby, Thanks to our guest, Jacqueline Keeler. 